podcast where we take you on a time-hopping journey through queer cinema going decade by decade to discover how it has evolved over the years i am your host dave janini and i'm here with my co-host manish mother so manish we are on officially to our second decade of supposedly queer movies so we're now we're on to the 1930s so are you like excited about this nervous about this i'm actually very um very excited because I think, you know, when we were in the 2010s and we had these movies that were like explicitly queer, you know, or even like, mm-hmm. even if, you know, they were teetering on the, on our little test, um, they were like demonstrably queer in a, in, in a sense. So now we're going to be in the decade where it's like, you know, there's not going to be like, you know, any making out on the beach scenes, you know, it's going to be a lot of... <laughs> Hints and uh, implications and jokes, whatever. So I'm very excited. Right. I think this will be a lot of fun and a lot of t- lot to talk about. It's interesting. I think the reason you're excited is the same reason that I'm nervous about it. <laughs> uh, because as you mentioned, the 2010s were not only demonstrably queer, but for a queer audience. Yeah. Uh, and this is not the case in the 1930s. Like, mm. yes, there was a queer audience in the 1930s, but that... I mean, you know more about this era than I do, but that's not something that Hollywood was really concerned about. It's like catering to a queer audience. So it's gonna be it's gonna be very different. And I think I predict that over these like ten movies or so, there's gonna be at least one or two, maybe one to one on this recording, maybe the next recording that we're gonna be like, oh, I feel like we are pulling teeth here to get the queer content. It's gonna be yeah, a little bit more difficult. Yeah. It's like this is. This is all pre-code, which is which is nice, right? Because once the Hayes Code comes in, it becomes even harder to get queer content or any kind of dangerous content. But even before the code, it's not like they were like, oh, let's just make all the gay movies. Like, that wasn't <laughs> what they were focused on. So I think there's going to be a lot less material, but yeah. there's still a lot of good movies to talk about. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely... You know, I hadn't actually thought about the queer audience thing, uh, just because I think even queer movies now are somewhat for straight audiences. Uh, there's, mm. a, you know, we talked a little bit about this fear of alienating the straight white men, um, <laughs> which is a life goal for me. But you know, for studios, <laughs> I think they want to get some money, and not have the same goals. That's- yeah, and then also think about like. You know, if something is a, um, like, uh, oh, God. If something is a little coded, I mean, the thing is, like, who who are the people that's going to pick up on that code? You know what I mean? Right, so like, I, I, maybe that's more for a queer audience than 2010's, uh, quote-unquote, queer movies, right? Yeah. The people that it's coded for are going to pick up on it right, right away. Like, exactly. oh, I see myself in this even if supposedly that person is in a romantic relationship with the opposite sex there's still right. something there for me that i recognize yeah and one phrase that you've brought up a few times in our last you know season or decade 
is like queering the narrative, which I think is something that's, that's going to um, come up a few times, especially yes. in, I think, our <laughs> film today. Yeah, definitely. And the film we're covering, of course, is Morocco from uh, from 1930. So directed by uh, Joseph von Sternberg and, of course, starring Marlita Dietrich and Gary Cooper. So um, this is definitely I mean, people who know who know us would probably say, like, this is this is a Manish movie. So I'm going to let you take the lead a little bit. So was this a movie you had seen before? Because this is one of those there's one particular scene that is like so quintessential old hollywood like it is known <laughs> this is one yeah. of those scenes that has survived even if you don't watch a lot of hollywood a lot of old hollywood movies you might know about the tuxedo scene so had you seen this movie before or was this a first time watch um i hadn't seen the film before but i have seen the uh the famous tuxedo scene it's one of those like it's almost like built for a montage of like old Hollywood queerness. You know That's what I true. mean? Like, I'm sure it's been in the Academy's like yeah, yeah. compilation video. Yeah. Like I'm sure like, yeah, it was played yeah, at the Oscars and some montage for like women, you know? Um, but <laughs> <laughs> women, we like them as long as they're not directors. It's right. fine. <laughs> Right, yeah, exactly. No, but um, it stars, yeah, Marlene Dietrich, and she plays a nightclub singer named Amy, and it's basically the like a love triangle uh, between her and uh, Gary Cooper, who's like a legionnaire, um, mm-hmm. legionnaire private, and he um, he's kind of a womanizer, kind of a you know good for nothing kind of guy. But they kind of have this flirtation, and um, they kind of fall in love. And I, I don't, I mean, I, I say kind <laughs> of a lot, but I think in this film, I actually mean that, like, it's not, they're not, like, it's not, I wouldn't call them, like, star-crossed lovers, like, they're going to beat the odds, but they just have this, like, very sensual, very complicated seduction between them. There's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of, you know, like... Um, just a lot of glances, a lot of like looking, um, and uh, they're kind. Of, I mean, because they are, um, because of the era that they're in, and uh, this is like the late nineteen twenties in Morocco, of course. And Gary Cooper is married, um, and uh, Marlene Marlene is sort of also being courted by a wealthy man named Lebesier and it's sort of this love triangle maybe even a love quadrangle on some level because there's a lot of different players going you know in this love story but the main thing is this very like forbidden romance between Gary Cooper and our Marlene and this there's a scene in in the beginning of the film which do you want to get into it now, or do you want to... Yeah, we might as well, because like, yeah. let's, let's lead with that. That's probably the most memorable scene in the movie, maybe until the very last scene. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Amy is a nightclub singer, and um, she is at... She's singing at this club where she's a headliner, and she comes out in a tuxedo, you know, with, with like, a, a top hat and the coattails, and first she is booed by the audience, um, and she just kind of, like, 
she just kind of shrugs off the booze, right? Like she doesn't. Mm-hmm. Very doesn't, self-assured. Yeah, very self-assured, very confident, very masculine, perhaps. Um, mm, interesting. Uh-huh. And, um, but Tom, who is uh, Gary Cooper's character, he essentially is the one that kind of like breaks through the booze, right? And um, he starts. Uh, if I remember correctly, he's starts clapping for her, right? Not yeah, he's not he's not cheering for her. Yeah, he's he starts like her. clapping for her and like yeah. kind of hushing everyone else, telling them to shut up, like kind of you know defending her right in, in this moment, which is like oddly romantic. Yeah, a little, a little yeah. weird thing to do in a nightclub, but still still romantic. Yeah, and he, um, or sorry, not he. Marlene starts singing this number called "When Love Dies," um, but she sings it. It's in French, I believe. Uh, because this is French Morocco. And um, while dressed as a man, uh, she kisses another woman in the audience on the mouth and throws a uh, flower to Carrie Cooper. And then she sings another song um, later, and she is wearing a dress, like, like a, you know, a very um, nightclub singer type dress. And um, after afterwards, she starts selling apples to the audience, which I found very interesting. And um, then she gives his uh, she gives her number to or uh, not not her number her uh, her key to I guess her hotel room or to her apartment. She gives that to Gary Cooper, essentially inviting him to sleep with her. And I think this sequence is like, you're right, I think probably the most famous scene in the movie and probably one of the most classic for Marlene or Marlena. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I, I mean, I do want to get into the ending, which I found very interesting as well. A lot, a lot, very last scene. Yeah, I, I would even say it's like the, one of the most famous scenes like in cinema. Yeah, like this is <laughs> I mean, if, if you were to make a list like this probably makes it. And I think the thing for me, which um, which is probably the most shocking, especially given the time in 1930, is that that would that scene would have been very easy to play for laughs mm-hmm. um but instead they go for glamour and it's like the queerest thing about it is not just that she's wearing masculine clothes it's that she looks incredibly hot doing it and then as you mentioned she comes out later in typical feminine garb and also looks absolutely stunning and gorgeous so to yeah. kind of you know play both sides of that is really radical in yeah. 1930 like th- these are things we take for granted as as modern film goers you know like or even just people who are aware of pop culture like how many how many pictures of tessa thompson have you seen in a beautifully tailored suit right and that's like it's not a shocking thing anymore but in 1930 Arlene dietrich in a tuxedo kissing a woman on the mouth that is like stunning. It's stunning even now to watch in a because it's not like you can't tell this is an older movie. It's right. in black and white. It has a very particular style to it that feels like old Hollywood. So when you watch that, I mean, I'm watching it at home, kind of like, oh my god, because I actually I feel like I'd seen glimpses of this scene, like just her singing in the tuxedo, but I'd never seen the entire scene in its entirety. Um, and obviously, this was a first time watch for me, and I'm watching it like, oh my god, I can't believe they did that. Like, even now, in 2020, I'm like, oh, my God. 
wow, look at you. So it's like it still pushes the envelope even now in some ways. And for me, however, like as as so you're absolutely right. Like it's radical that, you know, she's dressed like that and that she kisses the woman. I think honestly, like in reading more about this film, I kind of realized that that part of it gets overshadows what I think is the more uh, Hmm. radical part of it. I mean, of course it's very radical that she does all that. And I mean, I'm sure everyone is shocked. Um, But (laughs) I think, (laughs) but I think what's cool is like, you know, she has these two men after her. And one is, like, a suave womanizer, very, like, almost so handsome you don't want to, like, have the ability to see anymore. And the other is just, God, like, God, both old, of these leads. Oh, my God. I know. Like, my God. just beautiful. I actually don't think, like, Gary Cooper is very good in this movie. No. But, God, he is nice to look at in this movie. Because yeah. the movie itself is very kind of ethereal and magical. Yeah. And she epitomizes that. And he, you know... He's good in westerns like right. so it's yeah, a very different yeah style of acting but you're right absolutely gorgeous to look at um but so she has him and then she has um you know the, her wealthy older suitor and you know she can reciprocate the feelings of one but not the other you know because of social status or what have you but instead she you know slips she ignores her wealthy suitor while in the tuxedo and, you know, kisses the woman. Almost kind of embarrassing. Uh, mm. mm-hmm. um, I, should, I should remember his name. Uh, Le, Le Bessier, I guess. Um, or Le Bessier. Um, and essentially humiliating him because not only is she dressed like a wealthy man, but she's, you know, kissing another woman and, you know... She's essentially putting on the role of uh, the seducer, you know. And um, and then when she's dressed as the woman and doing the very, very feminine things like selling apples or, you know, singing her other song, um, uh, she then, um, you know, she openly, maybe not openly, but definitely makes a, like, a dedicated move to seduce another man. And I think this is like, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I think it's, you know, no mistake that, you know, we have Gary Cooper who's so young and baby faced and virile versus this like other guy who's like old and, you know, kind of useless. Right. He can only provide financially, but there's yeah. nothing. There's no sexuality there. sexual about it. Yeah. Him. Mm-hmm. Like, Definitely. Um, so I, I there, like, there's got to be something there about like old versus new, and yeah, like financial versus like actual like sexual romantic, you know, uh, like red blooded, um, you know, maleness. But I, mm-hmm. so I think that's what's very interesting about the sequence is that like it's um, it's this whole like this whole first act I think is. Um, this whole like first section of the film is really taking a uh, look at you know male and female seduction and the way those two things are you know interlocked. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you also like kind of in a sideways way have brought up one of the things that I feel like is a big weakness of this movie. Yeah, is that um, given how the movie ends and we'll get to that in a bit. I think this movie needs to be like between Marlene Dietrich, and Gary Cooper, it needs to be like a grand romance. And it's not. It's it's much more sexual than romantic. It's much more based on desire. It's not about giving things up. It's not, as you mentioned, about star-crossed lovers. Yeah. Right? It's just about these people who are passionate about one another. And there's there's even a like one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when they're first talking and kind of bantering back and forth and her talking about kind of like how, you know, she's given up on men and him talking about like he's, you know, you know, I'm not going to be the one to change your mind about men. I'm kind of terrible. Like it's it's so charming and so well done. Um but I think if you wanted to read a gay subtext into it, like you can you can take a look at her when she's kind of trying to keep everyone at a distance. But of course, the movie goes a different route eventually. Um, but I think if you did feel that romance, if you did feel not just the sexual passion, but the romantic passion, then I think the end of this movie would be very moving. But because you don't really feel that there's a moment as you're watching where you're like, what girl, what are you doing? Just, you know. Put put your heels on and go back home. You don't need to run across the desert with this man. Like, yeah, this is not it's not a good call. Um, so, and I think that's because they don't build up that romance, and maybe because Gary Cooper isn't really. It just doesn't feel right for this role, other than the way he looks, and he's just yeah. not super into it. And there's that distance. There's that purposeful masculine like. I'm above this, you know, I am very suave and very cool. And because you have that, I don't, I think you miss that connection. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I think he is, um, not my favorite part of the movie. Uh, I think he, he just, he's almost too baby faced. You kind of need someone who looks a little bit more like, um, like dangerous, you know, like know, a like a Bogart type Bogart you know, like or yeah somebody who's been um, Clark Gable. Like someone who's been through the wars yeah yeah totally totally Clark Gable's a great choice because he's still that not to be an asshole about Humphrey Bogart but it's still like beautiful Class, yeah like just like, in Humphrey Bogart that that's just not his thing he's a good looking man but he's not like oh my god he's not a you know though, Hollywood you know. beautiful like. Clark Gable definitely is that, but he also has that edge, like he's been through some stuff and yeah. he's kind of figured himself out. Yeah. Again, has that self self assured nature, but without being quite so baby faced and quite so quote unquote pretty. Like Clark Gable is a good looking man, but he's not a pretty boy. He's like right? and Gary Cooper is absolutely a pretty boy here. Yeah, exactly. Um and I think with someone like Marlene, I think like you need someone who can like this is going to sound so gross, um, but, like, someone who can, like, handle her or, like, go toe-to-toe to her or with her. keep up with her. Yeah, yeah. keep up with her. Um, I, I feel like Gary Cooper is just, like, you know, he just, you know, he, he kind of has that bottom energy. <laughs> yes. I movie. mean, that's why that's why a movie, like, a romance in a movie like Gone with the Wind works, yeah. even though it's, like, super abusive and kind of gross when you watch it now. Yeah. But, like, these two going toe-to-toe, you're like... Oh, same thing with a movie like uh, like Taming of the Shrew, right? Yeah, with right. Elizabeth Taylor. And, you know, it's just like you need someone who's going to like match wits with her and go back and forth. And Gary Cooper just doesn't seem equipped 
to do that. Like he's just no. he's just not there. You know, the man has his talents, he has his skills, but keeping up with Marlene Dietrich is not one of them. And that is no shade on him because there's not very many actors who can who can't keep up with her because she like the second she shows up on screen it was it was crazy because i think i've only seen like maybe one or two movies with her now um but the second she showed up on screen i just like i was like oh that is a fucking movie star like you just know it as soon as she before she says a word you're just like that is who i need to be watching right now and you know it right away and it's just like and that especially now in 2020 is such uh, such a rarity, right? To see someone, you're like, oh my god, <laughs> that that's where my eyes need to be at right now. And you get it. And you, I don't think you really you really get that from him. You know, like it's just it's she's just not quite there in this movie. Uh, this is just like a perfect match for her talents uh, in in a particular movie. Like I as I'm watching, I'm like, oh, this is why people can't stop talking about this movie. This is why this movie keeps getting shown in all those clip shows. Okay, I absolutely get it now. And she just, she rules this movie. Like, anytime the camera's not on her, I'm like, what are we doing? Why are we, why are we bothering? Why are we bothering with this, like, side plot with someone getting shot in the back? I don't care. Let's go. And actually, I read a review for this on uh, Letterboxd, and I don't, I don't remember who wrote it, but it's probably the funniest thing I saw regarding this movie. It's like the most unbelievable thing about this movie is that Marlene Dietrich is playing a woman named Amy. That just doesn't yeah, make any she's sense. Not an Amy. <laughs> she is not an Amy. I'm just like, oh, that is so on point. Yeah. And like yeah. really hits home that idea of a movie star. It would be like, you know, you mentioned Clark Gable earlier, him playing a character named Bob Jones. Like, no, you right. are not. Like, that is not your name. I know this is based on a play called Amy Jolly, but like, just change the name. Like you're in Morocco, it's magical. You know, make it fun. <laughs> do yeah, do yeah. something with that name because you are, honey, you are not an Amy. Yeah, she's not. Um, yeah, I've seen her in a, in a number of films. Um, I've seen her in Touch of Evil and Stage Fright and What Is for the Prosecution. And it's interesting. Those a lot of those movies are kind of later in her career, but watching her in the 1930s in a 1930 film, like. I mean, yeah, it's just, like, capital G glamour. Like, she's so... Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we do have to have the conversation about gay icons, because I think she definitely is one. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I think she's more of a queer woman's icon than... I don't know, I mean, I don't know there's a difference, but I think she's... I would call her more of a lesbian icon than uh, like a gay icon, but... I think. And do you think that's because of this scene, or I is think there something? So. Well, I think she just under- has this like. She just has that like energy of, uh, like, um, how do I, how do I say this without sounding terrible? She just like. <laughs> <laughs> she just like has this like, um, like vibe to her of someone who like takes no, like takes on prisoners like she's just like mm-hmm. she has she's like so feminine but also so like masculine like she really is on like she doesn't um yeah yeah i think it's really just that the one number that i think i really associate with like yeah like women wearing suits now it's like of course it started mm-hmm. with her you know right. like she walked yeah, so think- that diane keaton could have run <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think we, we've mentioned this terminology a lot yeah. in this episode, that idea of being self-assured. Yeah. And she really has that. Like whether she is in a, you know, a long flowing gown or in a tuxedo or just hanging out in her hotel room, she feels even though she, you've, this character has clearly been through some stuff, she knows who she is. And she knows that yeah. she she's making particular choices and she is going full bore behind them, whatever they may be. Right. And I think you're right. I think there is like uh, because there's I think with with queer men uh, kind of gay icons, there's there's more of a camp to it. Yeah. Um, and that's that's not what her style is at all. Like she is just very comfortable in her own skin. And I was trying to remember the other movie I saw her in. The other movie I saw her in was uh, Shanghai Express, mm. uh, which was like two years later from the same director, got nominated for Best Picture. Fantastic movie. Yeah. Um, so highly recommend that if people haven't seen that. But yeah, I think you're right that it is probably more more akin to to gay women and bisexual women and pansexual women than it is to men um and i think you definitely feel that like it's like it's interesting watching this as a guy it's it's wonderful but it's like borderline uncomfortable when she shows up on the screen because she is just so confident and like i think sometimes there's a reaction to confidence regardless of gender where you're just like oh i need to i need to take a step back because you are clearly in control here. I need to just sit back and watch. And you really get that from her right away. And it's it's so nice to kind of be introduced to an old school film icon and not be disappointed. I think I think sometimes the there's the possibility that the expectations are so high because you just know the name and you're like, oh, this is going to be amazing. And sometimes you're like, even if it's good and it's, it never meets great, you get like disappointed by it. But that definitely was not my experience in wa- finally watching a Marlene Dietrich movie. Yeah, yeah. I do want to talk about camp um, because I, um, I think her like her whole like aura that um, she has like her whole like persona this like that she that she exhibits. I think people will call that campy just because it's like very um, pronounced and very like self assured, very confident. Very she's like very much herself. Um, mm-hmm. But I think people will call that campy because it's just like, you know, well, people don't really know what campy means and it's like the only word they know. True story. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Her persona just like has this um, level of like theatricality to it. You know, like she's definitely, you know, glamorous 1930s movie star, but there's also a like, groundedness to her, like an. Is earthy the right word for it? Maybe like hmm, yeah. I don't know about earthy, yeah, but like carnal. Maybe like there's just something so hmm. like pure about her, and um, it just feels so like in intense. And like I, you're absolutely right. Like the minute she comes on screen, and the minute she like leaves the the film, you're just like, why am I not seeing there? Like. Why is this just not right. like her doing a monologue for an hour? <laughs> right. I would watch that for a hundred minutes. Absolutely. Yeah. 
the other thing I noticed is that uh, I was laughing because, like, as as I always do when we record these, I have the movie up on IMDb so I can see who was in it and who directed it so I don't screw that up yeah. too badly. And, of course, they have these, like, automatic trailers that run silently. Uh, and there's something in the very beginning about, like, this is the, the picture that all of their pictures will be judged against. Like, it's very – I love, like, old trailers because they're always, like – this is the greatest film ever made. <laughs> we will never reach this finical again. Yeah. But I will say that like visually, especially given that this was made in 1930, this is just a gorgeous picture to look at. Like from a cinematography perspective, like I've used the word magical a bunch of times and it does. It feels like ethereal. It's like Avalon. Like, like it just really, it is cinematic in its purest form. And that's, and I think sometimes people are, they tend to like, oh, I don't want to watch old movies because I'm yeah. going to be able to tell it's really old and, oh, they don't have all the techniques. But, like, there are, you know, the movies that you've heard about, that that's the thing. Like, if you look at, like, if you're a letterbox person and you look at all the stats and all of mine are always like, oh, well, the 1930s and 40s must have been the greatest decade in cinema. And that's because the movies that you hear about, old you need to watch are, like, the best of the best of the best, right? Yeah. So they're all going to be, like, four, four and a half or five stars. Right, right. But this is one of those that, like, visually, like, really has an impact even now. Like, it, it doesn't – a lot of older movies sometimes feel – presentational in a way where it's like okay this feels like theater um but this definitely feels like a film it feels like a movie and you can tell from the opening sequence all the way till the very end that this is made with that in mind and von sternberg really knew what he was doing yeah yeah it's very um it's very clear why he worked with her so many times because i think they just got each other yeah. Uh, Definitely. He knew how to shoot her, and she knew how to... I mean, not that I've seen any of their other movies, but I'm assuming that... I mean, it's the same thing in Shanghai. Like, yeah. it's incredible. Absolutely. But before we get to, like, kind of a wrap-up and all that stuff, so let's talk about this ending. Um, so essentially, in the end, she joins these women who follow the Legionnaires through the desert, uh, whether they live or die. And, like, they're essentially giving up their lives. And in her case, you know, she's giving up a very comfortable life uh, to go follow him. So it's, a, you know, as I mentioned, I feel like it's supposed to be this great love moment, this great romance moment. And what was your reaction to this sequence playing out? I almost found it absurdist. Mm-hmm. I was reading about the film on Wikipedia, and they go into, like, they cite an article about the high heels. Um, <laughs> yes. And, it's a big deal. It's all yeah, over the internet. Yes. Um, very much Jurassic World. Um, <laughs> uh, we have had this argument before, Jurassic World haters. Yeah. <laughs> you two are not breaking new ground here. <laughs> yeah, but I think the absurdity of it isn't just the what she's wearing. I mean, naturally, that's what people kind of you know, glean onto, but I think it's just almost like she's giving, she's like, um, putting this, or she's like performing this, uh, huge romantic gesture for this guy. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I think the absurdity is that this woman who has all this like power and sexuality and she, you know, plays with gender and all this, she, you know, is doing this, like, you know, like, her, you know, her love life is so forbidden and stuff, and she is throwing this, uh, uh, throwing everything away for, like, some guy named, like, Tom or whatever. 
<laughs> Tom and Amy. Tom and the Amy. Most bland yeah. white couple. Like... Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's an absurdist choice and it's also absurd. And I think those are yeah. two very different things. Like yeah, the absurdist yeah, choice, absolutely. fine. That's interesting. That's like, oh, you're taking this woman who was like very powerful and owning herself and she's making this choice to give that all away and to follow the man that she loves. And there's, you know, there's a lot of ways you can look at that. And it's really interesting. But it, I mean, for me, the reason it doesn't work and we've, you know, poor Poor Gary Cooper, you know, rest in peace. Uh, we've just hammered on him in this episode. But, like, all I kept thinking as this happened, I'm like, for this fucking guy? Like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Like, right. you could, like, you could literally have any man in Morocco or, or go anywhere else. Yeah. Wherever, yeah, or woman, absolutely. You could have anyone you want. Thank you for correcting me on that. That's important. <laughs> but, like, this fucking guy, are you kidding me? So it's like, I think that ending is supposed to be powerful and like a tearjerker. And I'm watching it like with two reactions, one very confused and the other just kind of like ruefully laughing at this moment. Like what? Yeah. No, what are you doing? You are better than this. You deserve more. Like have some faith in yourself. (laughs) Like this is not the guy. And he told beginning i'm not the guy to change your mind about men listen you know like when people tell you who they are believe them this is not this is not the guy you should be chasing so it's really a shame that that is the reaction to it because i think on paper script wise it absolutely should work yeah but given the interactions it really really does not for me at least yeah me neither so i want to play a little game with you uh speaking of amy um, so I'm looking at her filmography, and I'm just going to give you some names, and I want you to say true or false. It's an actual character name. Oh, Those God. Okay. okay. All right. So first one is uh, Hunky. I I would say false, but that's so ridiculous it has to be true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the 1942 <laughs> film Pittsburgh, she played Josie Hunky Winters, also starring John Wayne. Uh, oh, God. What the- Okay, here's another one. Uh, Helen. Please say false. No, she plays Helen Faraday in 1932's uh, Blonde Venus, directed by Joseph von Sternberg. Oh, jeez. Helen. She's just not a Helen. She's much more a hunky than a Helen. Are you kidding? Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) Okay, I'll I'll do one more. Um, Elizabeth. True. That's correct. She plays Elizabeth in The Lady is Willing, directed by Mitchell Leeson. Okay, see, that makes sense. That is a royal name. I can get behind Elizabeth, but like Helen and Amy. No offense to any listeners we have that are named Helen or Amy. It's just not a uh, a name that inspires glamour. But like, you know, uh, people, you know, yeah, you know, people like look like their names sometimes. Right. Like, right. she looks like a Marlene. Yeah. And like, I, honestly, she just had that name in all of her movies because it just makes sense for her. <laughs> right. I totally agree. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so, uh, favorite part of our show. Uh, what have What have you learned from watching Morocco? Um, I think I learned that uh, sometimes, like, I think, like, a movie... Like, I was waiting for more of an explicit... Maybe not explicit, but, like, more of like a sort of undercurrent of queerness in the film. Um, considering I've only seen, like, I'd only seen that famous scene, you know, and so right. 
I was thinking, like, oh, Morocco, like, she wears a suit. Maybe she has some, like, mistaken identity or, like... Like, I didn't know anything about this movie before watching it. Like, you know, Morocco, I thought it was, like, you know... Like, who knows? That's such a, like, non-title that, like, it could be anything. Um, right. <laughs> so I was thinking, oh, maybe it's, like... Maybe it's, like, a war movie or, like, a spy. Like, who knows? Um, so right. I thought there'd be some element of, like, you know, she... You know, like, maybe she is, like someone who like has to like be a spy or something. Um, mm. But so like, I thought there'd be more of an undercurrent of queerness. And when there wasn't, I was a little like, well, how is this even a queer movie? But something that I, maybe I didn't learn, but like, I sort of reminded myself watching this movie that like, you know, queerness can come from like one scene and mm-hmm. like, you know, that, but that scene could also like paint a picture of the, of the character and of the actor. So I th- I think with in Morocco I think definitely like that scene definitely like I think in my opinion like raises the character to be a little bit more interesting because there's a little bit yeah. more subversiveness subversiveness there than if she had just done two numbers in some you know gown I don't think this movie would be remembered as fondly without you know the tuxedo number yeah it's a great point i think if you put her in two beautiful dresses like i don't think anyone ever talks about this movie now like i I don't i don't think we come back it's not like it's not a bad movie but it's certainly not great and it certainly has faults and things that don't really work uh but that scene is what puts it over the top um so for me it's interesting because this is this is one of the only movies um, outside of like, you know, the movies of the 2010s that I'm like, OK, this is the movie we're doing when we were when we first put together the schedule. This is one of the first ones that I put on there, because if you look up like, you know, queer cinema history, this always come up, comes up as kind of like one of the first, like especially past silent film, one of the first uh, like, quote unquote, gay moments uh, in cinema. Like the other one that kind of gets brought up is wings because there is a male on male kiss, mm-hmm. but I have watched that movie and that is not a gay kiss. It's very much a like completely like non-romantic, non-sexual kiss. Like yeah. I was already, cause I do another podcast, uh, called the words don't matter where we take a look at Oscar winners. And I was all ready to be like, no, it's gay. I swear it's gay. But I was like, eh, no, it's not. It's really not. So this is this is why we kind of started our earliest movie was going to be 1930, because everyone knows about this sequence. Um, so as far as what I learned, I mean, other than like, don't follow boys into the desert, which is a good lesson to learn for anyone like that is a bad, bad choice. Is that, you know, I, I think I think what I really learned is. Frankly, for me as a podcaster, like how much of a challenge that this decade is probably going to be for me, because you really do have to delve deep. Like, you know, if you want to find gay stuff in uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, like it's, you know, there's no question. It's there. It is a gay movie. It's about a lesbian relationship. Yeah. Whereas this is like, okay, you know, as you mentioned, like this idea of queering the narrative and, you know, doing things that like aren't that are unexpected. This is what this is what a movie like this offers. And I think it's really interesting to watch it through that lens instead of just watching it as just a movie like, okay, how can I look at this through an LGBTQ lens? Uh, And that was like and I think that that made me think higher of the movie than I probably would have 
um, if I wasn't viewing it through that lens. If I was just watching it just as a movie, I'd be like, ah, she was great, but the rest of it, meh. You know, but now I can kind of take a closer look, and I like the idea that if you look at movies in different ways, you can see different things. So I guess that's what I learned from uh, from watching Morocco. Um, yeah. So... We have to talk, of course, about the Russo test. Um, So there's three parts to this. Uh, Number one, the film contains a character that is identifiably lesbian, gay, bisexual, and or transgender. Uh, No. (laughs) I mean, it just, it just, it's not here. Like even our, even our quote unquote queer moment, right? It leads to her hooking up with a guy. Very, very straight stuff. You know, so it's already failed. The other two parts are, you know, they must not be solely defined by their orientation. Doesn't count because the orientation isn't there. And that character must be tied into the plot. So it's not here. Like this is the the quickest we've cut something out of uh, of the Russo test, which is not a surprise. It's kind of what we talked about leading up that like the Russo test was going to be much harder. And here we have it, our very first movie in 1930. And it doesn't even come close unless I'm wrong, unless I'm missing something. I think our first, you know, clear fail. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, and it's not just failing because like Manish is being difficult. It's like no, no, this actually, (laughs) actually does not match the Russo test at all. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so uh, before we go, um, you should know the next movie we're going to cover is 1931's *The Public Enemy*. Um, but in the meantime, until that episode comes out, uh, Manish, how can they follow you online and read your writing? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at the Manish eighty nine. Uh, that's T H E M A N I S H eight nine, and you can catch most of my writing uh, through there because I'm writing for some fun websites these days. So look out for that. Thanks. Definitely, and you can follow me at Dave A. Giannini, G-I-A-N-N-I-N-I. And you should also, of course, um, follow Talk Film Society and uh, see some of our writing there and uh, find other great writing, not just ours. Um, And, of course, uh, you should follow the show on Twitter. So follow us at Queer and Now Pod. 